The rest of you, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. Good morning. Uh, This morning we'll be reading from a couple of places in Scripture. The first is Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All right, you may be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you guys. See some uh, distant strangers returning. <laughs> it's good. Actually, we've been away a little bit ourselves, too. It's nice to be back with you uh, after uh, a week away camping up in Maine, which was very nice. Came back. We hadn't, we didn't kill each other, which is always a testament to God's mercy and grace anytime you spend a week camping. So it was very good. Um, that's, uh, I think the Sussex family summer travels have ended, so it's nice to be able to settle back in with you here. Uh, it was also nice to be away. I know that you were in good hands under the ministry of God's Word last week. I know... Uh, you were blessed, at least I hope you were, uh, to sit under the ministry of Tim Deering and the Word through him. Uh, he's just someone that uh, it's been a real joy to um, to get to know, uh, to partner with, and minister with, and joining some of the churches and pastors together in Delaware County, but also just to uh, learn from as well and grow from, be challenged by uh, just hearing some of the things that he's just very passionate about and some of the ways that God is working in his life. Uh, so I trust that God was just very gracious uh, to you. Uh, through him last week. And in fact, uh, this morning, the sermon, well, I'm going to build off a little bit of, of his sermon last week. Uh, if you've been with us, or, or if you're new with us this morning, a welcome, first of all, great to have you here. Um, but uh, over the summer, we've been doing something a little bit different from what we normally do. Normally, we're just kind of working our way through a book of the Bible uh, systematically. Uh, but over the summer, we put some of that on pause, and we're looking at a series where we're just kind of addressing through the scriptures some heavy questions that people often ask in relation to Christ or the church or what it means to be a follower of Jesus, some questions that are often barriers or hindrances to faith in Christ. So we've been taking the summer and kind of looking at those questions. Uh, and today, I feel like I'm being a little bit selfish, but I'm going to indulge a personal question uh, that I have on the heels of the sermon from last week. If you were here or if you, or if you weren't, I should say, uh, Tim, Tim Deering, he was reminding us of the value of the spiritual fruit of patience or of patiently enduring in faithfulness while we wait on the Lord, while we wait on his promises and the hope that he has for his people, especially in difficult times, right? Waiting faithfully, patiently enduring in faithfulness, especially in difficult times. Okay, and my question on the heels of that. It's a very simple one. It's a how. How do we do that? How do we wait patiently? 
And Tim actually got into this uh, a fair amount in the sermon last week. He actually talked about one of the key ways of doing that, as Pastor Mark prayed, is just uh, being open and attentive and receiving and delighting in the presence of God in our day-to-day lives. Right? We can so often go through life uh, just kind of blind to God's presence, to the working of His Spirit, to the grace of His Spirit. Right? So part of being patient is just taking notice of all the ways that God is present in the here and now, in and through our lives. Okay, But again, I'm going to come back with a follow-up question too. Yeah, and how do we do that? How can we do that better? How can we better be attentive to God's presence, to His grace, to His working in our lives? And how can we, in that, more faithfully grow in the grace of patience? Okay? So that's my question for this morning. Again, the question I'm asking. I don't think it's just me. I think it's a broad, at least I think the broader culture should be asking that question, right? Because, I don't know, I don't think it would take too much to, to realize that in our day and age of instant gratification, right, our ability to wait patiently, especially in times of tension or something unresolved, right, we're, we're getting weaker in that ability to do that well. Uh, my phone seems to be getting slower, Actually, it seems slower from the day I got. It's a piece of junk. I don't, I don't know what. But if I ever struggle with high blood pressure, uh, and I wind up on high blood pressure medication, it's probably going to be because of my phone, right? But I've also been just challenged and reminded over this past week, uh, maybe on the heels of just listening to, to Tim's sermon, that of just the many ways throughout my life I just struggle with impatience. So I think that's a vital question. But then that other question, too, of how do we be more attentive, I think that's an urgent question, too, in our broader culture as well, too. I think one of the glaring weaknesses of our broader culture is that we have lost this sort of God consciousness. We have kind of lost any sense of something greater than ourselves, of anything transcendent, of the glory of our Creator. Right? This has kind of been a theme as we've been working through our, you know, our series over the summer that one of the striking differences between us and the surrounding culture is that it seems like in the surrounding culture, all of life and really all of the world, everything has just been collapsed in on the self. Such that now it seems like the self with its whatever, identities, longings, dreams, goals, expectations, whatever, that self is is now the, the only sacred thing in life. And that self is the thing that we are to be most attentive to. And that self is the thing that is most worthy of worship. Which I think leads to a variety of struggles and issues that we've been talking about over this over the summer. But I think also that feeds this vicious vicious loop of impatience as well, too. Right? If there's nothing greater or grander or more glorious than the personal self and its desires, dreams, expectations, goals in life, well then, I'm going to be very impatient and frustrated so long as those goals and those longings go unfulfilled. Or if there's nothing greater in life that I entrust, I have the privilege of entrusting my life to, of handing over my life and submitting myself to and entrusting myself to, like Tim talked about last week, Oh man, then I'm left with this crushing burden of myself being the one to make something meaningful of my life, or to satisfying those longings. And so long as that doesn't happen, and so long as I'm unable to secure that for myself, it leads to great frustration and impatience. There's more we could talk about that. But all to say, I think on the broader level, this is a great question to ask. How do we grow in patience? And how do we grow in our attentiveness to the ways of God and to the things that he is doing in and through our lives? 
Or maybe the question, the particular question I'm asking this morning is, does the Bible give us tools and resources for that very thing? Does the Bible offer to us tools and resources to help us grow in our attentiveness to the grace and glory of God and also to grow in our patient enduring and faithfulness to him? And I'll answer it straight from the front. Sometimes I'm told I don't always answer my questions. Mike was telling me that. I'm going to answer it. Yes, I think the Bible does give us some wonderful tools to help us with that. So there you go. All right. And one of them, I think there's a whole bunch of them that come through the scriptures. One of them, I think, is this wonderful gift of Sabbath. I like to talk about Sabbath here on occasion, maybe every year or two or whatever. I feel led to be brought, come back around to this topic of Sabbath, partly because I think it's such a wonderful gift that God gives to his church, but also because as I spend time in the Word and I spend time in prayer, I often find myself being challenged and convicted that I could be more intentional and I could be more faithful in the ways that I practice Sabbath. And so I want to talk about Sabbath as this wonderful gift to help us grow in our attentiveness to God and in our growth in patience. Okay, so that's sort of the goal of the sermon. Uh, we're primarily going to be looking at that uh, through Genesis 1. We could be a whole host, or sorry, Genesis 2. It could be a whole host of passages we look at. But today we're working our way through Genesis 2, these first three verses. And if you know, right, these opening pages of the Bible, you know that Genesis 2, the first three verses there, actually bring to conclusion uh, this great creative activity, the story of God's creation in Genesis 1. Right? And without reading through that whole passage, if you remember how Genesis 1 unfolds, we actually talked about this a couple weeks ago. Right, This is the story of God's unfolding of creation, and it's divided up into seven days. In the first three days, right, God is working to restrain and subdue and bring order to the chaotic elements of this dark and chaotic world, right? He's restraining the chaos. He's subduing it so that the good habitats can appear, the dry land, the sky, the seas, right? And in days four through six, he fills those habitats with life. He floods them with life, he floods the skies with birds, the seas with fish, and he floods the land with animals and creatures and then with his own image, men and women. And then that brings us to day seven, which is that passage that Mark read for us, and I'm going to go ahead and read it again for you, because it's only three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed that seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay? And actually, it's that third verse that I want to zero in on here in the beginning, that God blessed this day and he made it holy. And it's that phrase, made it holy, that I'm actually even zeroing in on a little, little bit more this morning. And part of the reason I want to do this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, if you've grown up in the church and you've, I don't know what perspective you come, backgrounds you maybe bring to this whole question of Sabbath, but oftentimes when we think of Sabbath, we sometimes think, okay, this is that thing that was given to the people of Israel, that was in their law, that they were supposed to keep and to hold. But then something changes when Jesus comes onto the scene, and, and now we're, we're, we're not really under that old Israelite law anymore, so Sabbath is sort of take it or leave it. And that's a great conversation to have. I don't want to go all down that road this morning. Other than to say, just take note of where we are in the story at this point. Okay, we are way before the law has come. 
And we are way before, well, not way before, but we are certainly before even sin has entered the picture. And the law would be needed to sort of restrain the waywardness of man or to remind them of their sinfulness, right? We are before all that. This is part of God's initial week of creation. This is part of the original intention, foundations, establishment of creation. That this seventh day is blessed and made holy. I also think it's interesting to point out that this is the first time, or this is the first thing, if you want to call it a thing, in all of creation that we're explicitly told is made holy. Right? It's nothing in the physical world. It's no mountain or tree or sea that comes along and says, okay, I'm going to consecrate this and make it holy. It's not even men and women, though maybe we could infer there's a holiness placed on men and women as they're created in the image of God, but it doesn't expressly say, I'm going to consecrate them and make them holy. But no, it's the seventh day. It's a day in this week that we're told that God consecrates, that he blesses and makes it holy. It's almost like this is his last act of, a, of creation. That maybe the last act of creation wasn't actually placing his image, men and women, into the creation, but the last act of creation was consecrating and blessing, making holy this seventh day. You can debate that, but we're going to move on. The last thing I want to point out about this business of making this day holy is that throughout the Bible, especially throughout the Old Testament, to consecrate something or to sanctify it, to set it apart, to make it holy, usually means that this thing now has purpose to it. Right? Whenever God sets apart his people and he consecrates them and makes them holy, right? He's setting them apart from everybody else and he is calling them to his purpose and his agenda for their lives. Or when he sanctifies certain things and places them in the temple, right? They are set apart from ordinary common vessels and they now have this divine purpose to it. Which is all to say that when God blesses this day and he sanctifies it and makes it holy, this day now has a divine purpose. Which begs the question, okay, well, what's the purpose of this day? And to get into that, all right, let's talk about this business of resting, right? When you normally think about Sabbath, uh, probably the first image that comes to mind is a day of rest, rightfully so. The Hebrew word Shabbat means to cease or to rest. Okay, but before we get there, let's talk about even what we mean by this term rest, okay? Because God is the first one who does rest here. Right? It's God who first rests on the seventh day. And we want to be careful how we think about that. Uh, I don't think we want to come away from that thinking, man, God has just really had an intense week on the job. I mean, good gracious, he created everything that there is. And so he's probably pretty spent, he's probably pretty wiped out, so God has to rest. He has to kick his feet back, put his head up, you know, whatever, grab an iced tea, take a nap, enjoy the day, whatever it is. We don't want to think of it that way. Probably because, well, there's two Hebrew words for rest. There's that Shabbat, which means to cease from your labors. But that's actually not the word that's being used here. The word, the Hebrew word that's being used here is nuach. And nuach, it's one of those Hebrew words that when you say it right, it unlooses all the, the phlegm in the back, and you have to watch the people in the front row. Nuach, right? But this word nuach it has a little bit of a different meaning. It actually can mean a couple different things in the Old Testament. Uh, part of it can mean to... Uh, enter into and to situate yourself in a certain place. 
I like, for instance, if you would keep reading in chapter 2 and you get down to verse 8, it says God took the man and he placed him in the garden. Actually, the word there for placed is that word nuach, right? God rested him in the garden. Uh, or this word nuach, it also has this sort of throughout the Old Testament, this sort of sense of a royal rest. Like when a king enters into a new territory and conquers that land and establishes it as, as it as part of his kingdom, he sets up his throne there, and then he goes and he sits on that throne and he enjoys a royal rest from all opposition. Like maybe you think of 2 Samuel 7 when David is being uh, enthroned as king of Israel, right? He has kicked out the Philistines, he's beat back the Philistines and secured the land of Israel for God's people. And then in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, he ascends to the throne, he's coronated, and we're told that God gives him nuach, gives him that royal rest from all of his enemies. And you can almost, you can almost picture a little bit of that in this creation story where like the first three days of creation, God is beating back the forces of chaos, the bohu, the tohu, that's more Hebrew words for you, but beating back the chaos and the unruly places of creation so that life might flourish. And then on the seventh day, he enters into that creation, he situates himself inside his creation and claims his royal rest. Right? In other words, on the seventh day, the sanctified holy day, God enters in and takes his rightful spot as true king over all creation. Okay, so th- I think this is significant then for when we think about what it means for us to rest on the seventh, or rest on the Sabbath. And in a similar way, I don't think we want to think of our resting as, well, man, we've just had a hard week on the job, and our bodies need to unwind and recharge for the work week ahead. Or you don't want to think of Sabbath as like the traditional American day off, where you just kind of take it easy. Maybe you get to binge some of those shows that you have stocked up in your Netflix queue or whatever. Or maybe even just get to work at, you know, some of the things that are on your own to-do list. Or that it's a day where you get to just kind of focus on yourself a little bit from, you know, having to be consumed with work. That's not what Sabbath is. Okay, Sabbath, originally intended, is a day where we stop, you take your hands off the plow, you take your hands off the wheel, and you remember, oh, yeah, this is God's creation. And he has entered into this creation, he has assumed his lordship over this creation. Actually, if you read in Exodus 31, God says this Sabbath is a sign that is given to God's people so that you may know that I am the Lord and I am the one who sanctifies you, who makes you holy. In other words, this is a day, this is a gift that's given to God's people where as they take their hands off the plow, they take their hands off the wheel, they remember, oh, hey, look, this thing keeps going. (laughs) This thing doesn't collapse and burn up just because I take my hands off the wheel. This belongs to God. He's the creator. He's the Lord of it. And I'm just his servant. I'm just the one that he consecrates, that he sanctifies for his purpose. Which... Uh, is a very important thing to do regularly, right? Because remember, what a part of what is a part of what it means to be the image of God? What does it mean to be God's men and women? Part of that means that we are called to work in His creation, right? Genesis two: the man is called to cultivate that creation. Or Genesis one: men and women are called to subdue and to have dominion over that creation. 
right? And so if we go at that full steam ahead, right, we, but we don't stop to take notice of the lordship of God and his creation, we can very easily assume, okay, this creation now belongs to me, and I am the rightful Lord, and it's rightful that this thing revolves around me. Eugene, Eugene Peterson, I've always loved this quote, he says that, well, he says, look, when we work, we actually are most godlike, which means that it's in our work that it is easiest to develop God pretensions. Unsabbathed, our work becomes the entire, the entire context in which we define our lives. We lose God consciousness, God awareness, sightings of resurrection. We lose the capacity to sing, this is my father's world, and instead end up chirping little self-centered ditties about what we are doing and what we are feeling, right? I'll say, first and foremost, what is the Sabbath? What does it mean to rest on the Sabbath? It's a day where we take our hands off the wheel, we stop, we cease, so that we can be attentive to God who has entered into the creation, and we can be reminded that he is the rightful Lord of this creation as well, too. As the biblical storyline unfolds, you know how this goes. Tragedy enters, sin Violence, wickedness, oppression enter into this whole story, which means that God's activity now in creation has to revolve, involve a certain graciousness, a certain rescue operation, a certain redemptive activity in the lives of his people. And you see this in the Sabbath too. So that Sabbath also becomes a day where we remember that God has, in fact, been gracious to us as his people. And he has delivered and he has provided redemption. If you read in the book of Deuteronomy, when they're going through the Ten Commandments there and you get to the Sabbath command, right? part of what's mentioned in what you do on the Sabbath is that you remember, Israel, that at one point in time you were slaves under the oppression and the violence of Pharaoh in Egypt, yet God in his grace came and delivered you. Right? And so you need a day where you stop and you remember that. You remember his goodness, you remember his lordship over creation, you remember how he has been gracious to you. I think that this is at least in part, there's a lot more to this conversation as well too, but I think this is at least in part why in the New Testament and in the ancient church, the day uh, switches from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Right? Because it was on the first day of the week that God's most climactic activity of redemption took place. Right? Christ came walking out of a tomb, securing victory over our greatest enemy, the enemy of death. And so the first day of the week became the much more natural day to celebrate new creation, to celebrate God's lordship now over all things, and to celebrate his redemption over his people. But again, that's a much longer conversation. i just throw that in there for you to consider. Again, broader point. What does it mean to rest on the Lord's day or to rest on the Sabbath? It means you take your hands off, you stop with the normal routine, and you just give attentiveness to who God is, to his glory that's on display in this creation that he has made. You give attentiveness to the fact that he has entered into this creation. He is present with his people. You give attentiveness to that fact that he is Lord over this creation. And you remember all the ways that God has been gracious to you, not only in redemption, but all throughout your life. In other words, can you see how (laughs) this gift of the Sabbath can very easily be a wonderful tool to help you develop that God consciousness or develop that awareness or that ability to receive and delight in the presence of God all around you. 
God desires that for his people. And so he gave him a day. Hey, take a day and just give yourself to the joy of what it is I'm doing and have done in my creation in your life. Okay, one more thing I want to point out about this original Sabbath and that you'll see as you read about Sabbath all throughout the Bible. Do you notice something interesting in this Genesis uh, 2, 1 through 3? Or do you notice something that particularly is not mentioned in here? I'm thinking here in relation actually to Genesis 1. If you go back to Genesis 1 and you read the accounts of the six days, at the end of each account of each day, you'll get this phrase, and there was morning and evening the first day, or morning and evening the third day, or morning and evening the sixth day, and that's kind of like the literary cue, okay, day's over and we're about to start the new day. When you come here to day seven, you don't have that. There is no, and there was morning and evening the seventh day. Almost as if there's a sense that this day doesn't stop. This first Sabbath that God enters into, this royal rest that he enters into on the seventh day, that doesn't end, but that it continues into perpetuity. And here's why that's significant. Okay, significant because, again, when you get into chapter 3 and sin and death and violence and oppression enter that story, there is a sense that God's people, we have fallen out of that rest of God that we were meant to enjoy. Right now, the chaotic elements have moved back in. Now we've given a foothold to God's enemies. Now there's going to be strife and division and death and warfare. We've, like, lost some of that rest that God always intended for us to participate in. And so what you find throughout the, whole, throughout the Bible then, and what you find in writings of the ancient church, or even in Jewish literature, there's a sense that the weekly celebration of the Sabbath is also a remembrance that, yeah, there is this greater rest yet to come. And the writer of Hebrews expounds on this a good bit, that there is this greater day of rest yet in store for God's people. Yes, Jesus has come, secured victory over the power of death. Yes, he is working new life in us by his spirit. But that's not the end of it. There is more even yet to come. There is an even greater rest for us. There is an even greater participation in the consummate kingdom of Christ that is yet held out for us. And so what the writer of Hebrews will point out is that like, almost like the weekly Sabbath was an opportunity to look forward and to anticipate and almost to rehearse or to play out scenes of future rest in the here and now. Some of the old Jewish rabbis, they would actually say, don't go killing a fly on the Sabbath day. Not because that was work, but because they were looking forward to this new creation day when all of God's creatures will live in harmony together. And so what is the Sabbath day? It's the Sabbath where we look forward, we anticipate, we play scenes of that. So don't go killing flies. I still don't know how that works, when, where I'm going to get my cheesesteaks in heaven, but I'm assuming God has figured out a way to work. And by the way, did you ever see what, did you all see what happened to Jim's steaks? <laughs> I had to work that into my sermon here today because I was told that there is a group of older women here that were making wagers on whether I or not I was going to mention the burning down of Jim's steaks. So to whoever was making that wager and, and betted that I would, uh, you're welcome. Anyway, back to where we were talking. <laughs> Sabbath as a day that looks forward and anticipates and plays out scenes of that future final rest. And I highlight that because can you see how that, to do that regularly, 
might just help us grow in our patient waiting and our patient enduring in faithfulness while we wait on God to bring about that glorious new creation? Can you see how on a weekly basis, remembering that, being in or anticipating that, and even making that tangible and accessible to us in such a way that we practice that here now, can you see how that might help us grow in our patience as we wait on that? When our girls were younger, they probably don't even remember this, but like when we would come into the summer months, and maybe like a few weeks before we were getting ready to go on vacation, I would sit them down and I would show them pictures maybe of where we were going. Like if we were going to go to Ocean City as a family together, uh, I would show them pictures of Ocean City, the beach, or the boardwalk, or the amusement park, or Mac and Mango Pizza, or Core Brothers Ice Cream, or all this. Um, and I would show them pictures of maybe when we were there last year, or the year before, or whatever. All to sort of build their sense of anticipation, but also to make what was coming in a month's time a little bit more tangible for them, so that they could almost like feel it, taste it, to help them in their time of waiting. You might say, well, that seems a little counterintuitive. Wouldn't that increase their frustration that they're not there yet? But I don't know. Like, I think when you make something tangible, like, it helps us in our ability to wait for it. <laughs> One more dumb example. Uh, the, uh, the, my, my, my parents are here today, and the, the family went up to my parents for dinner. I think it was on Thursday night. I couldn't go because I had a meeting. Uh, here, but so everybody was out of the house, and every time everybody is out of the house, that is my opportunity to make a seafood dinner for myself, because nobody else in the house likes seafood, doesn't even want to be around when there's seafood, and so if I were to make seafood in the house when everybody's there, I just get ugly looks and looks of disgust the whole night. So anyway, so they're gone, and so I make a seafood dinner a little bit, I've got fire up the grill, I'm going to put shrimp uh, kebabs on there, have them marinating in the fridge, right, and I came home from work. You know, it's the end of the day. I'm hungry. I got to wait for my charcoal to get loaded up, and then I put that in there. And meanwhile, I'm looking in the snap cabinet, and there's all these snacks up there. And I think, oh, I'm kind of hungry. Maybe I'll just grab, you know, a bag of chips or something just to hold me over. But then I get a whiff of, you know, the the the, the shrimp and the marinade. I actually had some. There was some crab on sale at Giant, so I went all out and I, I really splurged. But anyway, you started. You could smell this. And all of a sudden, what was coming was a lot more tangible to me. And as it was more tangible to me, it's like, I don't want to waste my what space I have in my stomach with these stupid snacks up here to close the snack cabinet, and I just waited patiently, right? Because it's made tangible. I can taste it. I can feel it. I know it's coming. In that same sort of way, but in a much grander and more holy way. The Sabbath day is meant to be this day where we look forward with great anticipation to all that's yet to come. And as we celebrate that and play that out in the here and now, make that tangible, it helps us, I think, to grow in our patient waiting. All to say, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, and I love talking about Sabbath. Um, but all to say, can you see how Sabbath could be and I think it is one of these delightful gifts that God gives to the church that helps us grow on a weekly basis in our attentiveness to who God is and what he's doing and also helps us to grow in our patient endurance, our patient faithfulness while we wait on his glorious new creation yet to come. In just the time that we have left, a couple practical pointers for anybody who might want, desire to be more intentional with Sabbath or to celebrate a little bit more. Uh, 
a couple of things to think about. And here, you know, there's tons of great books and resources I'd love to point you to because there's a lot of things to think about and to talk about. And what often gets talked about is, well, am I allowed to do this or not allowed to do that on the Sabbath? I'm not going to go down those roads this morning. I think the New Testament kind of uh, changes the way some of we think about some of that. But uh, big picture, I would say just come back to Genesis 2. God makes the day holy. And I think that's the big picture ideas. You think, what does it mean to celebrate Sabbath? Well, I would encourage you to consider what it would mean to make a day holy. Make a day set apart, distinct, consecrated to a purpose outside of yourself. Right? That's the whole point, is that this is a day that's not consumed with my to-do list. It's not consumed with the work that I have to do or whatever. But it's a day that's just devoted to who God is and what he is doing in my life. And so I would encourage you, one of the things to think about if you want to practice Sabbath more faithfully, okay, how can you do that? How can you bring structure to this day in a way that sort of consecrates it and sets it apart and makes it holy? Everything from little simple practices like the Jewish communities would have very set prayers that they would pray to begin the Sabbath day. Or maybe they would have what's called Sabbath lights, candles, right, where you would light the candle on the Friday night the day before that would extend, you know, throughout the day, and then you would blow it out at the end of the Sabbath just to sort of frame the day and to set it apart. Or when I was putting Georgia and Jeffrey to bed last night before today, the Lord's Day, um, I sang this, I got my ukulele out, and I sang the song to them that we sang to our older girls every night when we put them to bed on the day before Sunday. We would sing to them, This is my Father's world. Uh, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the beauty of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas. His hands the wonders wrought. And in the last verse, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. Hey, wonderful song. But again, it's just a little something that we do. Start the Sabbath, and then I'll probably sing it again tonight at the close of the night just to kind of bring a framing to the day. The bigger question, how do you set this day apart? How do you make it distinct, different? Another big principle uh, has been helpful for me. A lot of people will talk about the Sabbath as a day for both fasting and feasting. You say, well, how do you fast and feast at the same day? Well, think a little bit beyond food, right? It's a day for fasting from your to-do list, from all of the things that occupy you and consume you throughout the week. Or it's a day to fast from your self-centered or self-collapsed-in agendas and instead give yourself to God's purposes. Who he is, what he's up to, what he's wanting to do in your life and in and through you. Right? And it's a day to feast on that. It's a day to feast on the beauty and the glory and the power and the majesty of God. Right? It's a day to feast on that when we come together in worship, right? To sing songs of that, to sit under the ministry of the word that declares that to us. That's a day to feast on the glory of God. Maybe as you get outside on a wonderful day like today where the heat seems to have broken just a little bit and the sun is shining, the sky is blue. Maybe this is why I'm so interested in talking about today because I just came back from a camping trip in Maine, which is just sort of like this magical heavenly place for us. And like all week just seems like an extended Sabbath where just everywhere around you, everywhere you look, there's just this powerful demonstrations of the glory and the beauty and the creativity of the Creator Right, So there's a sense where you're to feast on that and worship. 
feast on that in the arena of his creation. Feast on the fellowship as well with God's people, with God's family, the people who are uh, deposits, walking deposits of the Spirit of God. Uh, when we were over in is- Israel in the, fu- in the spring, we were in Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee when the Sabbath night came, when the Jewish Sabbath came Friday night, which is a little annoying and frustrating because everything shut down, so I couldn't go into the, any of the local establishments and talk to people or whatever. Actually, well, I could. I found some nice Arab establishments and we went and talked to people in there. But anyway, when we were having dinner on Friday night, they start their Sabbath celebration on Friday evening. When we were having dinner behind us, in the room behind us, there was, the room was just filled with you know, a family or multiple families or maybe a whole congregation of a local synagogue that was in there celebrating the arrival of the Sabbath. And I tell you, it was a raucous affair, (laughs) right? These people were in there and they were talking and they were laughing and they were singing and praying and eating. At some point, even people got up and started dancing while other people were singing. And it left me thinking two things. One, ah, I want to celebrate Sabbath with others. And two, our celebrations are Kind of lame around here. These people really know how to celebrate Sabbath. Right? So there's that sense too. Okay, so it's a day for feasting. Feasting on the glory of God and worship. Feasting on the glory of God and the arena of his creation. Feasting on the goodness and the graciousness of God together with his people. So nuts and bolts, if I could say well, you know, three things. You know, definitely corporate worship uh, it goes hand in hand with Lord's Day Sabbath worship. Man, I would encourage you to get outside a little bit on the Lord's Day and just step outside of your little world and just take notice. Anytime, anytime you want to go on a hike on the Lord's Day or go float down the Brandywine River, just give me a call. We'll, 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 we'll go with you, right? And maybe even get together with God's people. Have a meal with some of God's people and just celebrate what God is doing in their lives. Celebrate the presence of God and His Spirit in the lives of His people together. Anyway, there's so much more that we could talk about. Again, great books and resources, or I'd love to talk uh, more about that. If you'd like any time, if there's a group of people here who would like to maybe explore this business of practicing Sabbath a little bit more intentionally, I'd love to talk with you about that. There really is something even more rich and meaningful about Sabbath practice when it's done together as a group of people in a family. So, yeah, let's talk about that sometime. But let me close with this. Also read from Isaiah 58. It says, if you turn back your foot from trampling the Sabbath. And you turn back from making the day of just your own pursuits and your own pleasures, and you make it a delight, and you make it a a joy, and you honor it the way it was originally intended. You notice what what it said there? I'm going to read it. Then, verse 14, you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I'll feed you with the inheritance of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, you catch the promise here. Look, as you honor this day, this gift that I've given to you, then you will delight in the Lord. This is wonderful promise. You know, and I would say to anybody, especially if you're considering Christianity, or if you're exploring it, or if you're curious about it, right? I would say to you, right, you're swimming in this culture where everything has collapsed in on the self, and the self alone is the thing that is sacred and most worthy of our attentiveness and time and worship. And man, that comes with a whole host of problems. But even more than that, it's just kind of sad. 
Maybe it's just because I know myself. There's nothing greater, more transcendent, or more beautiful, or glorious than myself. It's just a sad existence. Christianity is this wonderful invitation to something that is so much more greater than yourself, so much more meaningful and satisfying and fulfilling than just yourself. And here's the thing. Your creator is all too delighted to give that to you because it comes from from himself. He's all too delighted to give to you his very self. This is one of the things that was most staggering about the Christian religion in the ancient church is that there was this God who actually cared enough about his people that he came wanted to be with them and wanted to indwell them and be present in their lives. That's one of the incredible things that I would challenge you to consider even in today's world, that you were made for something so much greater. You were made for relationship with your father, with your creator. And here's the thing. He delights to give himself to you. He even sent his son to suffer death so that you could be restored in relationship with him. Right? And to all of us then, he gives the Sabbath not as his drudgery or not as his duty, but he gives the Sabbath as this wonderful gift, this joy to say, hey, look, as you stop and you attend to me and who I am and all that I've done and how I'm working graciously and redemptively in your life, you will delight in me. And so how is it that you find meaning and purpose? How is it that you find greater delight and joy? How is it that you find renewed patience? Well, so you won't be harmed by taking a deeper look at the Sabbath. And so we would pray that God would take his grace and his gifts, the various ways that he grows us through his word, but in particular also this Lord's Day, this Sabbath, and use it to grow you, to grow us together in our patient, faithful endurance for him and for the sake of his mission, and also grow us in our delight of who he is and all that he has done and is doing in our lives until that great day of his appearing. That's the other thing i got to get back at Tim for. How in the world do you preach an Advent sermon in August? I think that's violating all sorts of liturgical codes, so we're going to have a conversation about that. But he was right about one thing, right? That's what we're looking forward to, the appearing of God and his great final salvation. So may God keep you faithful, may he keep you patient, and he may keep you full of his delight until that great day comes. In the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.